You're listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. On this podcast, we feature a curated selection of content from the pages of New Ideal, the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. At New Ideal, we explore pressing cultural issues from the perspective of Rand's philosophy, objectivism, which upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. Find us on the web at newideal.aynrand.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Ideal Live. This is the video and podcast series of New Ideal, the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. We discuss complex issues and the we discuss the complex issues and events shaping our world from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. This is a philosophy that upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. Uh, you can find out more about uh, our ideas and about our publication by visiting New Ideal Live. And you can join our Q&A today through Zoom. Uh, if you go to uh, meeting ID 812-506-718. Uh, I usually put the number up on the screen, but I forgot to do that today. Sorry about that. Uh, the, my name is Ben Baer. I'm a, uh, I'm a fellow and instructor at ARI. I'm soon going to be joined by our guest, Adam Mossoff. Uh, but the topic that we'll be discussing today is a topic raised by an article uh, that Adam published recently, which raises the question, and then Adam has a definite answer to this question, should government commandeer the coronavirus vaccine? Uh, so this is uh, based on an article that Adam recently published in Real, Real Clear Policy uh, on May 7th, 2020, with the provocative title, Congress Plans to Steal the coronavirus vaccine. So uh, I'm going to bring on Adam in just a minute, but let me, while he's turning his camera on, introduce him. Adam Mossoff is professor of law at Antonin Scalia Law School, George Mason University. He's a senior fellow and chair of the Forum for Intellectual Property at the Hudson Institute and a visiting intellectual property fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He's published extensively on the theory and history of how patents and other intellectual property rights are, prop are property rights that should be legally secured to innovators and creators serving as a foundation for contractual exchanges in the free market and growing innovation economies. His scholarship's been relied on by the United States Supreme Court and by federal, uh, US federal agencies. He's also been invited numerous times to testify before the US Senate and the House of Representatives on intellectual property legislation. So Adam, are you out there? Can you, uh, can you join us? Yes. Hi, Adam. <clears throat> Pleasure thanks, to be here. thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm. So I, I uh, flashed the title of that article on the screen a moment ago, Congress wants to steal, uh, plans to steal the coronavirus vaccine. Can you tell us a little bit more about the, the thesis of your article, uh, what it is that Congress wants to do and why they want to do it and uh, you know, your basic evaluation. <laughs> Thank you, yes. Um, so uh, <laughs> um, to fill in some of the information behind what sounds like perhaps a clickbait headline, right? <laughs> that classic headline. Um, but it, it's actually not a clickbait headline in this instance. Um, the, the, the headline is based upon a, uh, a recent proposal, um, although there have been uh, numerous proposals in the past several months from 
some ranking members of Congress in both the Senate and the House of Representatives, in which um, they have been calling for the government um, to uh, step in and either uh, expropriate any patents on um, diagnostic tests, therapeutic treatments, or even vaccines that have been developed to treat uh, the coronavirus. Um, and if they uh, choose not to uh, commandeer and expropriate these patents um, in basically some what's referred to in the policy debate sometimes as breaking the patents, taking the property outright. Um, they have invoked this piece of legislation from 1980 known as the Bayh-Dole Act, um, which gives the US federal government uh, the power uh, to, in the phrases, march in and to man and to basically take a patent and license other people to manufacture a drug or anything else that may have been the byproduct of um, any uh, federal funding of research that led to that patented innovation. Um, and, uh, and my, and my, and my op-ed essentially explains why elite, um, uh, under the Bayh-Dole legislation, legally that what the, what the legislators are proposing is not actually, um, provided for or, um, per, uh, justified by the law, but even setting the legality aside that actually this is a completely invalid and unjustified uh, use of government power. Right. So one of the, one of the reasons that I noted that you mentioned in your article for why you didn't think this Bayh-Dole Act really gave them the legal power to do what they wanted to do was, well, the, the law has very specific conditions under which it can be invoked. Uh, one of those conditions is if, if uh, first of all, it of course has to be uh, federally funded. And if it's federally funded, then uh, it has to be that the government judges that uh, the companies that are producing the drug are not setting reasonable prices or producing a reasonable amount. And you argued that, well, this can't be invoked now because this drug hasn't yet even come on the market. And so there's no basis for uh, making any claims about whether it's a reasonable price or something like that. But I mean, just to play devil's advocate here, couldn't mm -hmm. someone say, well, okay, the drug doesn't exist yet, but it, when it does exist, uh, doesn't that kind of law give government quite a lot of leverage, uh, particularly, I assume, because it doesn't exactly define what reasonable prices and reasonable production is, won't they be able to invoke it uh, at that point? Yes. So uh, let me back up for just a moment and give a broader context to the Bayh-Dole Act, which was actually a really important and incredible piece of legislation. For once, Congress passed a good piece of legislation, um, <laughs> despite this aspect of it that was uh, bad that everyone now knows of it through the march in power. But actually, that is not what the core function or purpose of Bayh-Dole was, was, was enacted for. Bayh-Dole was enacted in response to the fact that as the government, after the, after the Second World War, began to massively fund basic research um, throughout the United States, particularly at, at universities and other, um, and other research institutions, um, there, there, was a, there was a concern that, well, because there was basic research being supported by public funds that you couldn't get a patent for these, uh, for discoveries of new technologies or new methods and industrial processes that were being developed by these people. And so the, so people were not getting patents because the, it was unclear what could be the property status of these, of these inventions. And a lot of these inventions, therefore, were just sitting on the shelf, so to speak. I mean, really life-saving uh, medicines and drugs and other types of technologies were not being commercially exploited because the property rights status of these, of these inventions was unclear. And, uh, and so Congress became aware of the situation in the 1970s and through some hearings agreed that we should make clear that it doesn't matter if a researcher has received 
uh, public funding, for instance, through the National Institute of Health um, to, uh, to you know, discover a particular therapeutic treatment that might be used in the healthcare market or some other type of invention. If they have a patentable invention, they should be able to receive that patent in their own name or in their employer's name, in this instance, the university. And then the university will license it and deploy it, or that person will license it and deploy it in the marketplace. Um, and this has this led to the explosion of all of these startups that spin out of universities, including, for instance, Google. Um, Google was uh, spun out of Stanford through its what's called the Tech Transfer Office, um, and uh, you know the and the Google founders were actually got a patent on their um, on their original uh, form of their of their PageRank uh, search algorithm, and um, as a result, the Stanford University has received over three hundred million dollars in licensing fees uh, from uh, from Google over the years. So this explosion of what everyone knows of these startups that spin out of the universities um, and, and university licensing of new uh, and incredible biomedical innovations is really a byproduct of Bidol. And that's really what Bidol was for. But of course, when they enacted Bidol, they said, oh, well, but these inventions do come from public funding. And so the public should have some interest in these types of innovations. And so they said, so if um, if the uh, patent owners ultimately end up acting in unreasonable ways, and that's the language that's used in, this, in, the, in the statute, unreasonableness, um, then the government has a march in power to step in and to take and license without authorization the patent invention to other manufacturers um, in order to get the product in the marketplace. Now, unreasonable in this context does not mean prices are high. In fact, this has been kind of the settled interpretation of this legislation for many, many decades. Um, as people have repeatedly tried to invoke it to um, have the government step in and mandate what's called compulsory licensing, you know, where the, essentially the government expropriates your patent for not wholly takes it away from you, but simply says, well, we're going to now license it to other people. You will receive some royalty rates from this, but at a rate that we're going to set. So for instance, during the AIDS pandemic in the 1980s and 90s, um, many people, many organizations and activists um, uh, officially petitioned the U.S. government, the National Institutes of Health, to use its marching power um, to, uh, take, to take and license patents that are covered like AZT and other types of uh, medical treatments that were being developed at that time. And the government recognized that, you no, know, these, 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 me these medicines are being developed. They're being uh, deployed in the marketplace. Um, it is. This is not the meaning of what this uh, of, of what this provision is provided for. This provision really means if someone is literally just sitting on their patent and not actually going out into the marketplace, and there's a need for it. There are people in the market saying we're willing to pay money for this. Um, the government has this march in power. It shouldn't, by the way. Um, it, you know, and ultimately, ideally, the government shouldn't be funding basic research in the first place anyway. Um, but at, regardless. The, 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 the reasonableness um, language in the statute is not about pricing. It's about the activities and the licensing behaviors generally of the patent owners and not about the market price. Um, and, I, and I think because they recognize, I mean, what's unreasonable? <laughs> One person's unreasonable is another person's unreasonableness. So even leaving aside the question of the legitimacy of this law and the legitimacy of the research that necessitates mm -hmm. it, if, at least if you just go by the precedent, that's been set. Yes. Uh, this lots of other people have have petitioned for it to be for this marching right to be invoked. Mm -hmm. It's been denied every time, even during the AIDS epidemic, even when the prices were relative were higher than they might have wanted them to be. Yeah. Uh, that that's that's clarifying. I mean, the original. I mean, people may not remember. I mean, twenty five years ago, the original 
you know, development of the of the drugs like AZT and others, what are now referred to as a cocktail because it's a it's, it's a collection of different drugs um, that you know, were used to treat um, AIDS victims was you know tens of thousands of dollars. Um, and because um, it was new and innovative, this was a byproduct of billions of dollars of R&D. Um, and these are the drugs that turned AIDS from being a death sentence to now being a manageable condition, right? I mean, uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people today live with AIDS as a livable, manageable condition because of these drugs. Um, and the prices have come down over the years um, as additional, additional drugs have been developed and, and, and competition has 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 evolved in the marketplace but exactly you know the, it's not about the, the price of the drug it's about it's about the activities of the owner um, of the patent in terms of whether they actually are engaging in the marketplace they're taking their product or they are engaging in licensing because universities don't manufacture they don't want we don't want universities to manufacture um, we want them to license we want them to embrace specialization divisional labor right this is this is the key to what drives successful flourishing um, the economic key to what drives successful flourishing value producing activities in the marketplace is specialization divisional labor as adam smith recognized in 1776 so um and and Bidel makes this possible by making it possible for universities and others to license these innovations well, let's, let's expand a little bit more on that very point. You write a lot about intellectual property, and I, I don't know how much of it has been about drug patents in particular, but could you say more just generally about why you think enforcing drug patents uh, is such an important thing? And maybe you can expand even to intellectual property more generally from that. Yes, I mean, so... Um, so patents on new pharmaceuticals and new therapeutic treatments and diagnostic met, uh, methods and um, other things that have made modern life a veritable miracle um, by any historical standard um, were made entirely possible by the, by the patent system and not just the patent system the US patent system, which was a historically unique approach. We were the very first country historically who said we are no longer going to treat patents as monopoly grants, which is how all legal rights start, even property rights and land hundreds of years ago started as monopoly grants from the crown and patents were no different in inventions. Um, but the US, when we broke from England, um, we broke not just in the structure of our government and the, in the underlying justifications for it, we broke across the board. And part of that was the recognition that the actions and activities of both artists as creators and inventors as innovators uh, were the same at, at, at value creating activities of productive labor that a farmer engages in, that um, a manufacturer engages in, that any laborer engages in, in which they are using their mind to pursue the value, to create the values necessary uh, for a flourishing human life. And, um, and so we said, we are gonna protect these as property rights. We are gonna protect inventions as property rights through something, through a legal device called a patent. Um, and, uh, and as science developed and, and evolved, right? So as when you finally had the settling of the, of you know, what, are, what uh, agreement among scientists in the late 19th century around the, the basic atomic structure of, of, uh, of, of matter, right? So the, you know, the, that you know, scientists all eventually coalesced around atoms actually are the basic constituent uh, component of how uh, matter is composed. And moreover, you had the agreement upon the periodic table of elements, right, which occurred around the late 19th century. That was then what made possible the application of this kind of broad abstract basic science into applied science, right? And this is when medicine, as we now know it today, begins to evolve. But it, um, and 
it went hand in hand with the patent system. I mean, uh, and understandably so, for the same reason that the evolution of all property rights and the evolution of capitalism and the development of factories went hand in hand with recognition of property rights, is that people would not create these things if they were not secured in the fruits of their valuable labors and the values that they were creating and producing. And, um, and so the patents uh, from the very get-go in, in the early 20th century went hand-in-hand hand with the er very early development of biomedical research. And, and, you know, we've really forgotten. It's only been about 100 years since the revolution of start of modern medicine. Um, we've forgotten what it was like. And just I'll give you one example to illustrate this. So uh, President Calvin Coolidge's son, Calvin Jr., dies when he's 16 because he injured his toe playing tennis on the White House lawn in 1924, right? So this is 1924, so this is less than 100 years ago. And he injures his little toe playing tennis and he dies a week later because he got a staph infection. Mm. And there were no antibiotics yet that were invented to treat staph infections. Um, I mean, and this was part and parcel of daily human life. Any injury, no matter how slight or small, could, was potentially a death sentence for, for everyone. And, um, and this has been completely eliminated from our lives today because of the patent system, because it, it, has, it has, uh, re has provided the legal framework to innovators saying, you engage in productive labor, you identify and create the values, the, the tests, the drugs, the vaccines, the cancer treatments, you create these, we will protect your legitimate property right in these creations. Um, it, and Ayn Rand rightly recognized in her essay, Patents and Copyrights, right, that patents are at the core of what it means to recognize a uh, property because it recognizes the, the, the role of man's mind in his life. And it's exactly the case. And the, and the pharmaceutical industry exemplifies this par excellence. So to ask one, another uh, devil's advocate question, what would you say to somebody who says, well, yes, Grant all or most of what you just said about mm -hmm. the importance of patents generally. But when there's a global pandemic, it's, it's an emergency. Yeah. And shouldn't we have different rules in an emergency situation uh, as we do in many other areas of life uh, for this as well? What, what would you say to someone like that? So um, <clears throat> I would say a couple of things. Uh, one is, is that, um, you know, Certainly, if you are out, a true emergency, first of all, we, I think we should first of all be very clear about what our, our concepts and terms. Um, and so what do we mean by emergency? Um, because emergencies are always being invoked. We have an emergency of, of, of drug, uh, you know, we have a, a, a drug chaos. We have the opiate emergency. We have, we have a poverty emergency. We have, so, you know, emergencies have always been used, this phrase emergency has always been used to justify expansion of government, status controls over our life and the destruction of rights. So I think we have to be very clear and careful about what we mean by an emergency um, and whether an emergency truly does take us outside of the context of the usual uh, uh, moral requirements of respecting rights and the usual legal requirements of following due process, have, uh, ensuring that we have a limited government and things of that sort. Um, and so, uh, I clearly recognize that if you are an emergency of this type and where life is impossible, um, which is what Ayn Rand meant in, in, her, in her essay on emergency ethics, right, where one person cannot live without another person dying by necessity, um, then yes, you are now in a situation where you can say 
we are outside the bounds of what normally is required of morality and even of the legal protection of our rights in society. I, I'm very sorry but to say this to some people, but this is not an emergency, what we are in. We are going through a very serious pandemic, yes. We have had serious pandemics before, H1N1 and, um, uh, and others were, were explicitly identified as pandemics. The 1918 flu was a pandemic, uh, millions of people died. Um, and so we have to be very careful because if we say, well, this, this is now an emergency where everyone's going to die and, and, and things of this sort, we are laying the foundations where it's not truly an emergency, where we will continually repeatedly have the encroachment of all of our rights and the evisceration of all of our rights. And by the way, innovators and producers will recognize this as well. If they say, well, if this counts as an emergency and this counts as what it means for us to lose our rights. And the whole point of my, my, my company in my career is to produce and manufacture treatments to treat people. But I'm being told that the moment someone defines this particular area of my, med of, my, of my profession, an emergency, I lose all rights to what I will create and produce. They won't produce or create at all. I mean, so, um, <clears throat> I mean, the moment you're saying to people, we get to choose arbitrarily when the, you will reap the, the benefits of the fruits of your mind, um, people will not think. Um, and who can blame them? Um, and we risk doing that in this very situation. Sure. Um, you know, the, uh, the biopharmaceutical industry is racing right now to, uh, to find not just, you know, new diagnostic tests, but, new, but also therapeutic treatments and also a vaccine. I think there's last, uh, last uh, number was um, something like 80, uh, uh, you, know, prom you know, promising lines of research are currently being explored at this moment, if not more. It might be in the hundreds now. It's hard. <laughs> it keeps going up with each day. Um, and, but if, they're, if these people who are investing millions of dollars, billions of dollars ultimately, and, and tens of thousands of their labor hours, which will basically be told, well, you just did that as a slave for the rest of society. They will choose not to be slaves later. They will shrug. And, and, and who can blame them? So it sounds like part of what you're saying is, first of all, distinguish between genuine emergency and health crisis. There's a, there's a health crisis going on, but that's yeah. not like a everybody is going to die unless one thing is done. Yes. Um, I mean, but also, no, I, I, yeah, I mean, and by the way, classic kind of, you know, emergencies, you know, the, uh, that you see, we talked about in, um, in legal opinion sometimes in the context of property rights or things like, well, there's a, there's a firestorm sweeping through a city <laughs> and, um, and they need to create a fire break, you know, which yeah. is basically destroy some houses to create an area where the fire won't have anything to burn. I mean, that is, a, that is like, that's the type of emergency that we face with. And by the way, you know, our government does have the legal authority um, to do the types of things that it's been doing, but it has that legal authority on the basis of historical precedents, which were created before our biopharmaceutical revolution of the 20th century. Because before we had the innovators creating the treatments and, and, and medicines that we now have, oh, this was, these were the only ways that people re could respond to these types of crises. But we don't have to anymore. We shouldn't. And it sounds like you're also saying in a case like we face today, it's, it's, not only, uh, it's not only that we shouldn't withdraw patents on some kind of emergency grounds, but that it's all the more important to protect them if yeah. you want to speed new innovations to the market, because that's what gives people an incentive to do it. Yes. 
Yes, yes. You know, uh, um, again, Ayn Rand's you know incredible insight that the moral is the practical, right? Protecting uh, people's rights to the to uh, the the byproducts of their minds, um, to the values that they create, um, that we do so through property rights. Um, that this is also not just right as a moral matter. It by necessity, because it's right, means that it will lead to ultimately good overall results in the real world. In this case, more medicine, more treatment. It's exactly what we've had. As I said, we've gone through multiple, multiple pandemics and crises in this country. The polio pandemic, which was, you know, which was killing, you know, you know millions of kids and, um, you know, in the 40s and 50s. Um, and these, you know, the response to this wasn't withdraw property rights, withdraw patents, withdraw uh, uh, protections. The response was, we will continue to apply the exact same protections and property rights that, we, that we've always applied because this is what makes it possible and feasible for there to be a solution to these problems. It's, it's a value orientation. It's about thinking about how, not how do we withdraw and stop, right? How do we come up with the next 10-289 directive? It's how do we actually move forward in a positive way? How do we facilitate the innovators by freeing them and, um, and creating the things that will make these types of pandemics disappear um, and go away as other viruses and, and medical conditions, which used to be pandemics, have disappeared like polio. So we actually have uh, someone on, on Facebook who's, uh, who says the following, and I was going to ask a question about this anyway, so it's a good right. place <laughs> to jump in. Terry says, if any agency uses government funding to create anything, and if that government-funded agency receives a patent on anything they, they create, the, the taxpayers own that patent. Now, he's making a point about a, a government-funded agency. I assume he's also trying to make a point about yeah. uh, private companies that use government funding in general. But this is one of the rationales being given uh, by some of these Congress people like Jay, uh, Jan Schakowsky Ch for mm -hmm. why they think this, uh, these patents should be commandeered. Uh, what do you think of that rationale, generally speaking? Yeah, I mean that is the that is the rationale for for this is the you know the public has paid for this um, and therefore uh, you know they, through their taxes and therefore now they're being taxed twice they're being taxed with the original production of the research and then they're being taxed with the um, uh, with the now having to pay for the for the medicine uh, and there's several responses to this because uh, it's a great question and it's and it's a, and it is a legitimately confusing area given how much the government now funds and drives, not just research, but everything, right? They build our roads. They, they pay for the salaries of our teachers. I work at a public university. My salary is paid by the state. Um, and so, I mean, the government is in everything, right? And as a preliminary matter, right, this is, at, uh, we can make, I might just point, which is, I mean, this is, a, if, you, if you embrace that idea, right, this takes us down a very dangerous road because if you apply that principle consistently across the board, right, you, you, result, you will end up in the same place that President Obama ended up when he said, you didn't build that. Right, and when he wasn't talking about medicine or patents, he was talking about um, someone running their own business. And he invoked the fact that you didn't build the roads; the government did. You didn't. You didn't educate yourself. Public school teachers did. You didn't educate yourself in college. Public university uh, teachers did. You didn't. You know, he was invoking the fact that government has 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 forced itself into every area of our life, and then uses that as a justification to tear down the actual independent value creating activities that productive individuals then engage in. 
Um, and this is, shows you the danger of conceding, well, what could be wrong with the government funding what's what, which its original justification was what's called basic research, kind of theoretical research, really foundational, you know, molecular biological research, which in the 40s and 50s was considered 100% theoretical until the biotech revolution of the 70s and 80s, which then made it pr practical application um, through biotech uh, produced uh, medicines and treatments. Um, so as, as, a, as a preliminary point, right, we have to be very careful about the principle that underlies that, that, that the invocation of that. Um, <clears throat> but also, uh, as a secondary, secondary point, um, people have to realize that, <clears throat> that uh, especially in the biopharmaceutical context, there's a, it's really a false narrative that the government funds all of this research. Um, you know, and, this, and this narrative, by the way, has been pushed by the people who uh, are very much interested uh, on ideological grounds in eliminating patents in this area. Um, it is not true that most government, most uh, biopharmaceutical research comes from the government. Um, the, uh, the, the, in 2019 alone, just to give you just one small data point, um, the uh, private sector uh, invested over $139 billion in R&D in the biopharmaceutical research. Um, as compared to um, approximately th uh, 39 billion, um, I'm sorry, 29 billion, I apologize, not 30, 29 billion by the NIH. I mean, um, and, and so what you're talking about is, is that, you know, on a, on a dollar to dollar scale, you're talking about less than a third of total R&D is coming from the U.S. federal government. And that is the source, that's the only source, primary source, that is, not, I shouldn't say only, but it's the primary source. The, the National Institute of Health is the largest source of public funding of biomedical research in the entire world in terms of public funding. Um, and its maximum budget every year is $29 billion, which seems like a lot, but is a drop in the bucket compared to what um, innovators are doing. But second of all, um, as a, uh, that a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the cost of development is not in the basic research, but it is in the follow-on um, research that is done. And that's entirely private funded, privately funded um, <clears throat> by the... Um, or I shouldn't say entirely, it's about 80% uh, uh, completely funded um, by the uh, pharmaceutical companies in terms of developing the, the, not just the, uh, the, the additional innovative discoveries of how to get those treatments uh, into, the, into the healthcare market as viable treatments. Because think of it, so someone invents the molecule that will treat the coronavirus. Oh, and it's going to be a pill. Well, they also have to then invent the mechanism to get that pill past your hydrochloric acid in your stomach, and then how to get it, uh, how to get it absorbed through your intestinal wall, and how to get it into your bloodstream without it being attacked by your white blood cells. I mean, there's an incredible amount of innovation that goes into this. This is why, as a regular uh, cited fact, um, that for every single uh, therapeutic treatment that makes it to market, um, there's over $2.6 billion in sunk costs in research and development that has been spent before a pharmaceutical company has seen a single time. Um, that single pharmaceutical uh, treatment um, represents about 10, originally what started out as 10,000 different potential molecules that they were investigating for potential uh, uh, treatment of particular um, antigens. And so um, this is an you know, incredibly research intensive area and a majority of it comes from the uh, not just 
uh, the basic uh, researchers, but the follow-on researchers at the, at the private pharmaceutical companies who want to deploy it in the marketplace, who want to profit from it so that they can fund more research, so that they can succeed as a commercial company. And that's exactly what they, the, their job is to do. And that's what they've been do doing brilliantly. And we should promote that and support that. As I said, our life today is a veritable miracle. Um, you know, if I had said to you uh, 20 years ago that we would be treating viruses, that we would have antiviral treatments, viruses which have been the scourge of humankind for tens of thousands of years, right? I mean, the, uh, I, I would have said, and many researchers would have said, "You, that's insane. That's crazy. It's never going to happen. We can we can treat it. We can treat bacteria. That's what antibiotics are for." But we have now viable antiviral treatments um, and vaccines for viruses. Um, and this is because of the value creating efforts of individuals who were left free through their rights of liberty to create the types of values that they've created and they should be respected in their property rights in those creations. So Adam, in the interest of time, I'm going to skip over some of the questions that I had wanted to ask because I, we're getting a lot coming in. And so I think I want to just ask you one more question and mm -hmm. then uh, go to the audience. And for those who are on Zoom, I'd especially re uh, recommend and suggest that you submit uh, questions you'd like to ask me or ask uh, Dr. Mossoff. Uh, put those in the Q&A box. So hover over the screen, uh, click the Q&A button, and you'll get a module just for submitting questions. So my last question for you, Adam, is, uh, I mean, you've, you've, you've said some things now about what's wrong with this current legislative attempt uh, to invoke a certain uh, provision of a law. Uh, can you give us uh, something positive to end on? What would your positive view be of the best approach we can take from an intellectual property perspective to encourage the development of effective treatments for the coronavirus? Uh, is it enough just to maintain the status quo legal structure? Or are there some real reforms that could help improve uh, the research and development in this, in this country? Yes, so, um, so uh, certainly, um, you know, we can always make our world better. Um, and um, now, the, uh, again, to, re to, to emphasize, I mean, the coronavirus pandemic, which is probably, the, which is one of the worst pandemics that we've experienced in terms of an infectious disease since the, the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, in terms of its worldwide impact, um, this is not going to be a re repeat of the 1918 flu, uh, Spanish flu pandemic, precisely because of the existing structure that exists in the biopharmaceutical industry, a structure that was made possible by reliable and effective property rights, patents, that they were able to take these property interests and deploy them in the marketplace, enter into licensing deals. Um, in fact, this is another kind of uh, mistake that a lot of people think that, oh, the, the, that pharmaceutical companies will just want a quote monopoly, unquote, to themselves. And this is what they use their patents for. This is not true. They engage in numerous, numerous contractual exchanges, what are called licenses, with other companies. Um, you know, property rights facilitate uh, exchange, facilitate cooperation between mutually rights respecting individuals. And that's exactly what happens with patents is why patents are so successful. Uh, it's not that they promote invention. It's that they create real-world innovation by providing that bridge from the lab into the marketplace by, by making it possible for marketplace participants to cooperate. 
And so right now, the patent system has been under incredible amount of stress and, um, and has been under attack by the US Supreme Court and Congress and regulatory agencies, and all of that needs to stop. We need, you know, that the patents have been, have had their status uh, severely weakened as property rights in the past 10 years. This is not just true for, for, for biopharmaceutical industry, it's all patents. Um, <clears throat> it's been much harder to license patents now in the marketplace. I mean, these, these, these decisions by the US Supreme Court and the attacks by antitrust authorities need to stop. Um, and, uh, and innovators need to be left free the way that they have in the past to create the incredible treatments of, of hepatitis and diabetes and cancer and all of these things that used to be death sentences, which are no longer death sentences because of the value creating activities of, of, of the independent minds of people working in the biopharmaceutical industry. In the US biopharmaceutical industry, we were the birthplace of, of this because of our patent system. Um, but more broadly, you know, yes, if we should be thinking about reforms, this, 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 this pandemic is not about the patent system. This pandemic is about, is about our entire society. And, you know, and what it is, what it has, what has made clear to many people, right, are all the regulatory impediments that have prevented appropriate responses, how the FDA has crushed the ability of people in the pharmaceutical industry, not through the patent system, but through their regulations, prevented them from deploying tests, from deploying various, from, uh, from new masks being made and from, uh, from antibacterial wipes to be produced. Um, you know, people discovered this thing that used to operate in the background among specialists and no one really knew about called certificates of need that you can't just build a new hospital. You have to go jump through all of these uh, 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 so-called licensing approval boards in order to even just build a hospital. You know, this is, think of what, if none of that existed, what the response in our society would have been to this. People would have immediately started building hospitals and producing new masks and making massive amounts of, uh, of uh, antiseptic and things and so on and so on. But they were all prevented from doing this by the various regulatory barriers and limitations that are imposed by the federal government and even by the states. And so, you know, this is an opportunity for us to explain to people the ways in which this pandemic has made it very clear um, and obvious that regulations kill, that they, they result in people dying. And it's not just about, delay, you know, oh, we're talking about a medicine being delayed a few years. We're talking about pe right now people are dying because they, they're, people are worried that we wouldn't have enough hospitals. Well, the response to that shouldn't be to clamp down and have the government issue more restrictive orders and limitations and remove our rights to work. The response should be free people up to build hospitals, free doctors up to treat whoever they want without having to be licensed and so on and so on. And these are the types of reforms that we should be advocating for. And I think very dramatically because we're in a situation where it's made been, now been made very real to people. So earlier when we were talking about uh, the rationale used uh, to justify commandeering patents, the government funding rationale, mm -hmm. uh, you, you made the point, well, if you, if you use that same rationale for all kinds of other areas of life, uh, nobody will have any property rights left. Um, because you didn't build those things. I mean, you work at uh, GMU, and I yeah, guess next right. time everybody should go and stay at your house because uh, they they paid for yeah, it if they're a taxpayer. My house was purchased by taxpayer money. Uh, people should have free access to everything I write. Um, you know, people should be allowed to come and listen to my courses without having to pay tuition or anything. I mean, you can, you think I mean, and now and you say, well, I shouldn't work at a state university. I don't have a, I, I mean, how can you if you want to be a professor today? I mean, you could not do it. Well, and related to that, so granted that there's that reductio ad absurdum of the argument, um, I mean, there's still some pull to it, given that the 
the money is coming from the taxpayers. And so, I mean, there are there have been a number of people in the in the chat and the Q and A uh, pushing back, saying things like, "Well, why are these people taking uh, government funds?" And so Thomas asked the question, "How do we reduce the reach of the government into?" things like fundamental research. Uh, yeah. Judith also asked, is it even possible today to do R&D in the medical field without some government funding? Uh, do you have thoughts on, on this issue? So um, it's very hard um, or in, in next to impossible for, for, to do research now without at least some government funding. Of course, you know, the, as I mentioned earlier, the relative percentages are really small compared to the total amount of private funding, but nonetheless, the, that's, it's there. Um, but partially because, um, you know, it's, it's included and it's part and parcel of university research and universities are the source of a lot of this innovation. Um, and um, that's why you can't, and it's again, why Baidol was so key um, because again, these were exactly the innovations and discoveries that were being held up um, that no one was touching in the marketplace because the property rights status of them was unclear. Because people said, well, I'll invest all this time and money and effort because investments are not just an in initial invention as, invention, as I described earlier. They're in the creation, ongoing innovation that needs to be developed and to turn this into a viable, useful innovation. This is why people distinguish between inventions versus innovations. And there has to be massive hundreds of millions of dollars investment in the, on, on just the commercial side in the setting up what, what, what business persons call the value chain the manufacturing, distribution, and retail of, the, of these products and services, which itself is very, very hard and very complex and very risky. Um, no one will do this if they can't enter into commercial exchanges, if they can't be certain that their rights and their investments will be respected. And this is why before Baidol, these things just kind of sat on the shelf and no one touched them um, because no one wanted to take that risk. Um, and so, but yes, I mean, ideally, you know, the, the NIH, funding of, of, of research should be zero, um, ideally, right? Uh, there should be no public funding of, of research. This is coercive action by the state to take your money from you as taxpayer and to give it to someone else, a researcher, um, on the basis that the researcher needs this. Now, the researcher may not want it, right? You know, the researcher, uh, uh, given a choice, would probably reject it uh, if they understood the full context of what's happening here. But, they, but in today's current context, they're not able to, given the, the, the current structure of the way in which the government funds these things and the expectations of their employers. They work at universities where you're supposed to, you have to apply for grants and the grants are, all, are, 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 are a lot of public grants that have to be applied for and you yourself will, will lose your job or, or, or potentially um, uh, have other problems if you don't, are not applying for grants. And so, um, but this, but notice here, you're saying, well, the taxpayers are funding this, and so they're getting the benefit from it. Notice, so one act of coercion is now being used to justify another act of coercion, right? So, the, so it's like the economic principle of bad money, uh, you know, forces out good money, right? Coercion multiplies itself. So we, we, and we need to draw the line. We need to say enough is enough, right? If, if it, all right, if, if you have, an, if you can't stop the taxation, then that can't justify the follow-on coercion, or we're just going to end up in a cycle of justifying ongoing coercion. And this is, and we're going to end up like Venezuela or Cuba um, or the, you know, or Russia and the Soviet Union. Um, and so we, we, we appropriately need to draw the line. And, you know, Baidol was a, was a step, you know, because, you know, removing, of course, government taxation is would involve a radical shift to our society. <laughs> um, and that's not going to happen tomorrow. But we can start the process by at least saying, all right, 
there's government tax funded research, basic research of a lot of things, but the byproducts that come out of that through commercial investments, through commercial innovation, through ongoing innovative work, that itself will be respected and protected um, as a property right, um, given that it's not just public funding. It is entails a lot of innovative and uh, productive labor by business persons and researchers and other people who deserve to have their rights respected. So a lot of these issues are, are interconnected, it seems like. And uh, to make one connection back to something you were discussing earlier, the point about uh, the role of uh, regulations in uh, stopping various forms of uh, technology being applied or the hospitals yeah. being built. Uh, people are asking, how do you get the government, how do you get government funding how do you, out of the picture? How do you lessen people's dependence on it? And you made the point that, well, part of the reason that researchers need it in the first place uh, is, is because uh, of the fact that uh, they work at public universities, but there's other reasons as well. And, and we've touched on some of them. So if it's the case that these regulations make it difficult for companies uh, to plan very long range because they don't know if they're going to recoup the results of uh, mm -hmm. their investment, not just their investment in research, but in all kinds of things, mm -hmm. uh, then it makes longer term research and longer term projects more generally difficult, if not impossible for them. And so if, 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 the, if the main reason why it, there's a perception that government funded is needed to make that long term research possible, then the solution it would seem would be to remove the barriers to long term planning that uh, the regulations very often provide. And there's, I think, lots of examples of that, even outside of uh, medical regulations. And we had, I mean, we, we had incredible innovation in this country before World War II, when the government started, decided to step in and start to fund what is now called basic research. Um, uh, in fact, the, uh, most economists and historians recognize that the rate of innovation in this country was actually much higher, uh, relatively uh, speaking, uh, you, know, from you know, from 1800 to you know, 1950 than it has been since then. Um, <clears throat> But it's also another, as I said earlier, you know, the example, of, you know, they say, well, private companies won't do basic research. Um, well, in part, they won't do basic research because the government pays for it. And so the company, so they're like, why should we, 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 why should we fund it if the government is going to be, fun if the government is funding it and giving grants, we can't compete against government grants, we'll fund other research, we'll fund more applied research. And, let, and, um, and so, again, it's the economic principle of bad money of crediting out good. They, they would fund it if, they, if it made sense to them. And they do fund a lot of basic research um, because um, also these are smart companies. These are, these are innovators and they've recognized hmm, what was considered impractical and purely theoretical just 30 or 40 years ago is now actually considered applied research. It's now considered uh, you know, molecular biology, which was completely theoretical in the 1950s, right, is now actually deeply part of what it means to do medicine in this country. And, and so they recognize that today's basic research is tomorrow's applied research. And that's the incentive for them. And, and because they plan long range, because they do, and they have to. Um, the, uh, it's also recognized, it's cited that the average therapeutic treatment that makes it to market, a therapy treatment is a drug, essentially, um, is, uh, it's about 10 to 15 years. Um, now, some of that, a lot of that is jumping through regulatory hoops to get approval and testing and whatnot, but it would still be a very long time to develop this, uh, which is why we need to be worried because, sure, we take the patent today, or we break the patents today, 
um, we won't see the impact of this for many, uh, for many years, 10, 15 years. Um, and then you'll be wondering, well, where is our new vaccines? Where are our new drug treatments? And then, by the way, people will then be beating up on the pharmaceutical company again, saying, well, see, they're not even doing the work anymore. We need to have more government. <laughs> when it was, in fact, the government that prevented it in the first place. And one really good example of a point that you made a moment ago about how a lot of this private research would occur uh, were, were it not for the incentive of, of uh, government funding. Uh, you mentioned earlier also that a uh, hundred years ago, modern medical science didn't even really exist. It was only getting started. And I recently been reading a book about the history of the, of the 1918 flu. And one of the uh, points that's highlighted there is how when this thing breaks out, uh, one of the institutions that's first on the ground to start doing the basic research to combat the flu is Johns Hopkins. Uh, Hopkins was just founded that year or a few years prior uh, mm -hmm. by a huge private grant from Mr. Johns Hopkins. And it was, the, it was the institution more than any in the United States that was responsible for making medicine scientific. But before that, it had been basically uh, yeah. kind of you know, folk, uh, folk medicine and uh, no real uh, significant influence from modern empirical science. And that was all because of this you know, huge private bequest, because people privately knew this is long-term research we're going to need. And then they ended up needing it even faster than they thought they were going to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, and I mean, university or, you know, researchers at the University of Wisconsin, you know, discover, you know, the discovery of vitamin D and, um, uh, you know, and the, and the researchers in the University of Toronto who, who you know, figured out insulin. Um, you know, they did this in the 1920s and 30s um, without public funding. Now you could say, well, they were at public universities. Yeah, but I mean, but because of the existence of public universities up until that point in time, and, um, and they weren't receiving public funding of their research. And they came up with these foundational discoveries. I mean, insulin, which has, again, saved people's, hundreds of millions of people's lives since then, which has turned diabetes from, a, again, a death, what was originally a death sentence for, for many, many people into now um, a manageable condition. So Adam, uh, we've gotten a lot of other questions. Uh, unfortunately, we're not able to get to all of them. I think I think uh, the ones that are left, it would be it would be uh, strange to end on them. I think we just ended on a good note. So I want to thank you again for uh, for joining us for this. Oh, and well, thanks for inviting me. Uh, I want to thank also, and I hope we can see you again. I also want to thank everybody else who, for asking some, some interesting questions and getting this discussion really going. I hope we can have you again, Adam. Um, I, I do want to make now some closing announcements. So uh, first of all, I would like those of you who are joining us in Zoom just to share a little information with us about uh, what your level of familiarity with Ayn Rand's ideas is. This is a podcast, obviously, it's run by the Ayn Rand Institute, where uh, we, we provide commentary from the perspective of her objectivist philosophy. So we'd like to get a read on who our audience is and how much you know about Rand. Uh, we're trying to reach uh, new audiences, and we'd like to know if we're finding people out there who, uh, to whom her ideas are new. Otherwise, let me also remind people who are watching on social media, especially if you're watching on YouTube, if you liked today's episode and you'd like to see more like this in the future, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. And when you do so, be sure to click on the little bell that will uh, give you a notification when uh, we are about to go live or when new videos are posted. Otherwise, 
we will be continuing to do New Ideal Live episodes Mondays and Wednesdays, at least for uh, the near-term future. That happens Mondays and Wednesdays, 11 a.m. Pacific time, 2 p.m. Eastern time. And I will be back this coming Wednesday with my co-host, Greg Salmieri. We're going to be talking uh, about whether, whether we should just go by the science, whether science alone is guidance enough in making uh, decisions about the current uh, coronavirus pandemic or whether there are other kinds of knowledge we need to rely on as well. So thanks everyone. Thanks, Adam. Thank uh, we will see you all again soon. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.